Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight we continue our story, The Repairer of Reputations, by Robert W. Chambers. A knock at the door interrupted him, and his face resumed its amiable expression. Who is it? he inquired. Mr. Stalet, was the answer. Come tomorrow, replied Mr. Wilde. Impossible, began the other but was silenced by a sort of bark from Mr. Wilde. Come tomorrow, he repeated. We heard somebody move away from the door and turn the corner by the stairway. Who is that, I asked. Arnold Stalet, owner and editor-in-chief of the great New York Daily. He drummed on the ledger with his fingerless hand, adding, I pay him very badly, but he thinks it is a good bargain. Arnold Stalet, I repeated, amazed. Yes said Mr. Wilde, with a self-satisfied cough. The cat, which had entered the room as he spoke, hesitated, looked up at him, and snarled. He climbed down from the chair and, squatting on the floor, took the creature into his arms and caressed her. The cat ceased snarling and presently began a loud purring, which seemed to increase in timber as he stroked her. "'Where are the notes?' I asked." He pointed to the table, and for the hundredth time, I picked up the bundle of manuscript entitled The Imperial Dynasty of America. One by one, I studied the well-worn pages, worn only by my own handling, and although I know all by heart from the beginning, when from Carcosa, the Hyades, Huster, and Aldebaran, to Castain, Louis de Calvados, born December 19th, 1877. I read it with an eager, rapt attention, pausing to repeat parts of it aloud and dwelling especially on Hildred de Calvados, only son of Hildred Castain and Edith Landis Castain, first in succession, etc., etc. When I finished, Mr. Wilde nodded and coughed. Speaking of your legitimate ambition, he said, how do Constance and Lewis get along? She loves him, I replied simply. The cat on his knee suddenly turned and struck at his eyes, and he flung her off and climbed on the chair opposite me. And Dr. Archer? But that's a matter you can settle any time you wish, he added. Yes, I replied, Dr. Archer can wait, but it is time I saw my cousin Lewis. It is time, he repeated. Then he took another ledger from the table and ran over the leaves rapid. We are now in communication with ten thousand men, he muttered. We can count on one hundred thousand within the first twenty-eight hours, and in forty-eight hours the state will rise en masse. The country follows the state, and the portion that will not, I mean California and the Northwest, might better never have been inhabited. I shall not send them the yellow sign. The blood rushed to my head, but I only answered, A new broom sweeps clean. 
The ambition of Caesar and of Napoleon pales before that which could not rest until it had seized the minds of men and controlled even their unborn thoughts, said Mr. Wilde. You are speaking of the king in yellow, I groaned with a shudder. He is a king whom emperors have served. I am content to serve him, I replied. Mr. Wilde sat rubbing his ears with his crippled hand. Perhaps Constance does not love him, he suggested. I started to reply, but a sudden burst of military music from the street below drowned my voice. The 20th Dragoon Regiment, formerly in garrison in Mount St. Vincent, was returning from the maneuvers in Westchester County to its new barracks on East Washington Square. It was my cousin's regiment. They were a fine lot of fellows in their pale blue, tight-fitting jackets, jaunty busbies and white riding breeches with the double yellow stripe into which their limbs seemed molded. Every other squadron was armed with lances from the metal points of which fluttered yellow and white pennons. The band passed, playing the regimental march. Then came the colonel and staff, the horses crowding and trampling while their heads bobbed in unison and the pennons fluttered from their lance points. The troopers, who rode with the beautiful English seat, looked brown as berries from their bloodless campaign among the farms of Westchester, and the music of their sabers against the stirrups and the jingle of spurs and carbines was delightful to me. I saw Lewis riding with his squadron. He was as handsome an officer as I have ever seen. Mr. Wilde, who had mounted a chair by the window, saw him too, but said nothing. Lewis turned and looked straight at Hallberg's shop as he passed, and I could see the flush on his brown cheeks. I think Constance must have been at the window. When the last troopers had clattered by and the last pennons vanished into South Fifth Avenue, Mr. Wilde clambered out of his chair and dragged the chest away from the door. Yes, he said, it is time that you saw your cousin Lewis. He unlocked the door and I picked up my hat and stick and stepped into the corridor. The stairs were dark. Groping about, I set my foot on something soft, which snarled and spit, and I aimed a murderous blow at the cat. But my cane shivered to splinters against the balustrade, and the beast scurried back into Mr. Wilde's room. Passing Hallbark's door again, I saw him still at work on the armor, but I did not stop. And stepping out into Bleecker Street, I followed it to Wooster, skirted the grounds of the lethal chamber, and crossing Washington Park, went straight to my rooms in the Benedict. Here I lunched comfortably, read the Herald and the Meteor, and finally went to the steel safe in my bedroom and set the time combination. The three and quarter minutes which it is necessary to wait, while the time lock is opening, are, to me, golden moments. From the instant I set the combination to the moment when I grasp the knobs and swing back the solid steel doors, I live in an ecstasy of expectation. Those moments must be like moments passed in paradise. I know what I am to find at the end of the time limit. I know what the massive safe holds secure for me, for me alone, and the exquisite pleasure of waiting is hardly enhanced when the safe opens and I lift from its velvet crown a diadem of purest gold, blazing with diamonds. I do this every day, and yet the joy of waiting and at last touching again the diadem only seems to increase as the days pass. It is a diadem fit for a king among kings, an emperor among emperors. 
The king in yellow might scorn it, but it shall be worn by his royal servant. I held it in my arms until the alarm in the safe rang harshly, and then, tenderly, proudly, I replaced it and shut the steel doors. I walked slowly back into my study, which faces Washington Square, and leaned on the window sill. The afternoon sun poured into my windows, and a gentle breeze stirred the branches of the elms and maples in the park, now covered with buds and tender foliage. A flock of pigeons circled around the tower of the memorial church, sometimes alighting on the purple-tiled roof, sometimes wheeling downward to the lotus fountain in front of the marble arch. The gardeners were busy with the flower beds around the fountain, and the freshly turned earth smelled sweet and spicy. A lawnmower, drawn by a fat white horse, clinked across the green's ward, and watering carts poured showers of spray over the asphalt drives. Around the statue of Peter Stuyvesant, which in 1897 had replaced a monstrosity supposed to represent Garibaldi, children played in the spring sunshine, and nurse girls wheeled elaborate baby carriages with a reckless disregard for the pasty-faced occupants which could probably be explained by the presence of half a dozen trim dragoon troopers languidly lolling on the benches. Through the trees, the Washington Memorial Arch glistened like silver in the sunshine, and beyond, on the eastern extremity of the square, the gray stone barracks of the dragoons and the white granite artillery stables were alive with color and motion. I looked at the lethal chamber on the corner of the square opposite, a few curious people still lingered about the gilded iron railing, but inside the grounds the paths were deserted. I watched the fountains ripple and sparkle. The sparrows had already found this new bathing nook, and the basins were covered with the dusty-feathered little things. Two or three white peacocks picked their way across the lawns, and a drab-colored pigeon sat so motionless on the arm of one of the fates that it seemed to be a part of the sculptured stone. As I was turning carelessly away, a slight commotion in the group of curious loiterers around the gates attracted my attention. A young man had entered and was advancing with nervous strides along the gravel path which leads to the bronze doors of the lethal chamber. He paused a moment before the fates, and as he raised his head to those three mysterious faces, the pigeon rose from his sculptured perch, circled around for a moment, and wheeled to the east. The young man pressed his hand to his face, and then with an undefinable gesture, sprang up the marble steps. The bronze doors closed behind him. And half an hour later, the loiterers slouched away, and the frightened pigeon returned to its perch in the arms of fate. I put on my hat and went out into the park for a little walk before dinner. As I crossed the central driveway, a group of officers passed, and one of them called out, Hello, Hildred and came back to shake hands with me. It was my cousin Lewis, who stood smiling and tapping his spurred heels with his riding whip. Just back from Westchester, he said. Been doing the bucolic, milk and curd, you know. Dairymaids in sunbonnets who say, hi all, and I don't think when you tell them when they are pretty. I'm nearly dead for a square meal at Delmonico's. What's the news? There is none, I replied pleasantly. I saw your regiment coming in this morning. Did you? I didn't see you. Where were you? In Mr. Wilde's window. Really? He began impatiently. That man is stark mad. I don't understand why you 
He saw how annoyed I felt by this outburst and begged my pardon. Really, old chap, he said, I don't mean to run down a man you like, but for the life of me, I can't see what the deuce you find in common with Mr. Wilde. He's not well-bred, to put it generously. He's hideously deformed. His head is the head of a criminally insane person. You know yourself he's been in an asylum. So have I, I interrupted calmly. Lewis looked startled and confused for a moment, but recovered and slapped me heartily on the shoulder. You were completely cured, he began, but I stopped him again. I suppose you mean that I was simply acknowledged never to have been insane. Of course, that's what I meant, he laughed. I disliked his laugh because I knew it was forced, but I nodded gaily and asked him where he was going. Lewis looked after his brother officers who had now almost reached Broadway. We had intended to sample a Brunswick tale, but to tell you the truth, I was anxious for an excuse to go and see Hallberg instead. Come along, I'll make you my excuse. We found old Hallberg, neatly attired in a fresh spring suit, standing at the door of his shop and sniffing the air. I had just decided to take Constance for a little stroll before dinner. He replied to the impetuous volley of questions from Lewis. We thought of walking on the park terrace along the North River. At that moment, Constance appeared and grew pale and rosy by turns as Lewis bent over her small gloved fingers. I tried to excuse myself, alleging an engagement uptown, but Lewis and Constance would not listen, and I saw I was expected to remain and engage old Hallberg's attention. After all, it would be just as well if I kept my eye on Lewis, I thought, and when they had hailed a Spring Street horse car, I got in after them and took my seat beside the armorer. The beautiful line of parks and granite terraces overlooking the wharves along the North River, which were built in 1910 and finished in the autumn of 1917, had become one of the most popular promenades in the metropolis. They extended from the Battery to 190th Street, overlooking the noble river and affording a fine view of the Jersey Shore and the highlands opposite. Cafes and restaurants were scattered here and there among the trees, and twice a week military bands from the garrison played in the kiosks on the parapets. We sat down in the sunshine on the bench at the foot of the equestrian statue of General Sheridan. Constance tipped her sunshade to shield her eyes, and she and Lewis began a murmuring conversation which was impossible to catch. Old Hallberg leaning on his ivory-catted cane, lighted an excellent cigar, the mate to which I politely refused, and smiled at vacancy. The sun hung low above the Staten Island woods, and the bay was dyed with golden hues reflected from the sun-warmed sails of the shipping in the harbor. Brigs, schooners, yacht, clumsy ferryboats, their decks swarming with people, railroad transports carrying lines of brown, blue, and white freight cars, Stately sound steamers, déclassé tramp steamers, coasters, dredgers, scows, and everywhere pervading the entire bay, impudent little tugs puffing and whistling officiously. These were the craft which churned the sunlight waters as far as the eye could reach. Calm contrast to the hurry of sailing vessel and steamer, a silent fleet of white warships lay motionless in midstream. Constance's merry laugh aroused me from my reverie. What are you staring at? she inquired. Nothing. The fleet, I smiled. Then, 
Lewis told us what the vessels were, pointing out each by its relative position to the old red fort on Governor's Island. That little cigar-shaped thing is a torpedo boat, explained. There are four more lying close together. They are the tarpon, falcon, the sea fox, and the octopus. The gunboats just above are the Princeton, the Champlain, the Stillwater, and the Erie. Next to them lie the cruisers Farragut and Los Angeles, and above them the battleships California and Dakota, and the Washington, which is the flagship. Those two squatty-looking chunks of metal which are anchored there off Castle William are their double-turreted monitors, terrible and magnificent. Behind them lies the ram, Osceola. Constance looked at him with deep approval in her beautiful eyes. What loads of things you know for a soldier, she said, and we all joined in the laugh which follows. Presently, Lewis rose with a nod to us and offered his arm to Constance, and they strolled away along the river wall. Hallberg watched them for a moment and then turned to me. Mr. Wilde was right, he said. I have found the missing tacits and left cassard of the princes emblazoned in a vile old junk garret on Pell Street. Nine ninety-eight, I inquired with a smile. Yes. Mr. Wilde is a very intelligent man, I observed. I want to give him the credit of this most important discovery, continued Hallberg and I intend it shall be known that he is entitled to the fame of that. He won't thank you for it, I answered sharply. Please, say nothing about it. Do you know what it's worth? said Hauberk. No. Fifty dollars, perhaps? It is valued at five hundred, but the owner of the prince's emblazoned will give two thousand dollars to the person who completes his suit. That reward also belongs to Mr. Wilde. He doesn't want it. He refuses it, I answered angrily. What do you know about Mr. Wilde? He doesn't need the money. He's rich, or will be, richer than any living man except myself. What will we care for money then? What will we care, he and I, when, when, when what? demanded Hawberk, astonished. You will see, I replied on my card again. He looked at me narrowly, much as Dr. Archer used to and I knew he thought I was mentally unsound. Perhaps it was fortunate for him that he did not use the word lunatic just then. No, I replied to his unspoken thought. I am not mentally weak. My mind is as healthy as Mr. Wilde's. I do not care to explain just yet what I have on hand, but it is an investment which will pay more than mere gold, silver, and precious stones. It will secure the happiness and prosperity of a continent. Yes. A hemisphere. Oh, said Hallberg. And eventually, I continued more quietly, it will secure the happiness of the whole world. And incidentally, your own happiness and prosperity, as well as Mr. Wilde's? Exactly, I smiled. But I could have throttled him for taking that tone. He looked at me in silence for a while and then said very gently, why don't you give up your books and studies, Mr. Castain, and take a tramp along the mountains somewhere or other? You used to be fond of fishing. Take a cast or two at the trout in the rangeleys. I don't care for fishing any more, I answered, without a shade of annoyance in my voice. You used to be fond of everything, he continued. Athletics, yachting, shooting, riding... I have never cared to ride since my fall, 
I said quietly. Ah, yes, your fall, he repeated, looking away from me. I thought this nonsense had gone far enough, so I brought the conversation back to Mr. Wilde, but he was scanning my face again in a manner highly offensive to me. Mr. Wilde, he repeated, do you know what he did this afternoon? He came downstairs and nailed a sign over the hall door next to mine. It read, Mr. Wilde, repairer of reputations, third bell. Know what a repairer of reputations can be? I do, I replied, suppressing the rage within. Oh, he said again. Lewis and Constance came strolling by and asked if we would join them. Hallberg looked at his watch. At the same moment, a puff of smoke shot from the casemates of Castle William, and the boom of the sunset gun rolled across the water and was re-echoed from the highlands opposite. The flag came running down from the flagpole, the bugles sounded on the white decks of the warships, and the first electric light sparkled out from the Jersey shore. As I turned into the city with Harburg, I heard Constance murmur something to Lewis which I did not understand, but Lewis whispered, My darling, in reply, and again, walking ahead with Harburg through the square, I heard a murmur of, Sweetheart, and my own Constance, and I knew the time it nearly arrived when I should speak of important matters with my cousin Lewis. One morning early in May, I stood before the steel safe in my bedroom, trying on the golden-jeweled crown. The diamonds flashed fire as I turned to the mirror, and the heavy, beaten gold burned like a halo about my head. I remembered Camilla's agonized scream and the awful words echoing through the dim streets of Carcosa. They were the last lines in the first act, and I dared not think of what followed. They're not. Even in the spring sunshine, they're in my own room, surrounded with familiar objects, reassured by the bustle from the street and the voices of the servants in the hallway outside. For those poison words had dropped slowly into my heart, as death sweat drops upon a bedsheet and is absorbed. Trembling, I put the diadem from my head and wiped my forehead, but I thought of Hoster and of my own rightful ambition and I remembered Mr. Wilde as I at last left him, his face all torn and bloody from the claws of that devil's creature, and what he said. Ah, what he said. The alarm bell in the safe began to whir harshly, and I knew my time was up. But I would not heed it, and replacing the flashing circlet upon my head, I turned defiantly to the mirror. I stood for a long time absorbed in the changing expression of my own eyes. The mirror reflected a face which was like my own, but whiter, and so thin that I hardly recognized it, and all the time I kept repeating between my clenched teeth, The day has come! The day has come! While the alarm and the safe whirred and clamored, and the diamond sparkled and flamed above my brow. We'll continue this story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories like this one to read. If you know of any, let us know. Email bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel for your enjoyment. You can go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us to spread the word. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night.
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>